Amen. So in looking at the question, who is God, today we come to the idea of God being a comforter. So the question we have to ask is, what makes you comfortable? Because whatever makes you comfortable is what God's going to do, right? No. Uh, comfortability is an odd thing. In the summer, we're comforted by cold air. In the winter, we're comforted by a warm fire. On every day, I'm comforted by coffee. There are some people who use a, an electric blanket to keep themselves warm every month of the year. I don't know why, but she sleeps next to me. I've wondered sometimes how Isaiah stays so fit. And I realized he has a blanket that weighs 12 pounds that he carries around so that it's nice and weighted on him when he lays down. I tried it once. It's A, really hot, and B, I feel like I can't move, like somebody's tied me up. But it makes him comfortable. We have to jettison the idea that God being our comforter and us being comfortable are in any way in the same world because they're not. God does not offer us comfortability. He doesn't offer to make us feel comfortable. He offers to comfort us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 we're going to look at verses 3 to 7 as our main text for the day, but, but let's just read verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just him saying hello. Hello. There's lots of great things there, but it's, it's him saying, hello, this is from Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, 10 times he's going to say the word comfort in these next verses. Pay attention to them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So 10 times in that passage, the idea of comfort is brought up. Roughly half of them are particularly about God giving comfort to people, and half of them are about people giving comfort because of God to other people, which tells us a little something about comfort. It is not only supposed to be something that we receive, but as we receive it, we show it and give it to other people. In order to really grab this, we've got to make sure that we have the right concept of what it means to be comforted. 
Being comforted is not, as we were already saying, the idea of luxury or leisure, the idea of, of beaches and, and playing in the ocean. Though that's great and it's fun and it, it's not bad. But that's not being comfortable or comforted in the sense of what the scripture is talking about. It's not talking about having things just the way you like them so that everything happens according to your desires and your purposes. It's not about that. This is about being comforted in the midst or strengthened in the midst, upheld in the midst of affliction and suffering. That's where comfort is found. That's even what we see here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. First of all, mercy and comfort are tied together. They're put together on purpose. We get comfort because of mercy. So let's look at the flow of this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So God's mercy gives us comfort. Therefore, we are to do what? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction. So the flow of verses three to five says, God in his mercy gives us comfort out of his mercy so that we can give comfort to the people around us. Why? In case we didn't catch it the first time, he says, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So in the way that God comforts us, we can comfort other people because or for we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. So why do we show? Why can we show comfort to the people around us? Because we have received mercy from God and in case we missed it, because Christ suffered and so we're suffering with Christ and because we suffer with Christ, we are also comforted in Christ. What does that mean? It's a really strange way of saying something or at least it feels strange. What is the suffering that he refers to in Jesus? There's a shift after this set of verses. There's a shift in what goes on. But, but what is the suffering that he is talking about here from Christ? Let's go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. Most of us are looking at me like, He's the what? It's a great word, propitiation. Not really a word we use. But it's a great word and it carries all the meaning that it needs to. But what it means is that he was the one who appeased God's wrath, his right wrath for our sins. Jesus is the propitiation, the appeasement of God's wrath so that we don't have to be. Do you know what happens if we appease God's wrath? We are destroyed in the process. But Jesus took his wrath on my behalf, if I trust him. He took God's wrath and became the propitiation. He appeased that wrath because he could take it. He could handle it. He could get rid of all of it. 
For he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, what that doesn't mean, we could get into long discussions on what it does mean, but what it does not mean is that Jesus paid for everybody's sins, so everybody goes to heaven. That is not what it means. At least in part, what it means is that he took all the sins that he was going to pay for on himself. How exactly does that work? Are we more reformed? Are we more Arminian? We could have that discussion at a different time. But what it means is that Jesus on the cross took the weight of all the sins that would ever be paid for. Do you have any idea how much weight that is? I can't handle my own sins or I would be destroyed. And Jesus took not only the sins of those people who were there, who were going on in the Bible times, and took the weight and paid for those, but all the people who came before, the hundreds and hundreds of years of people who sinned before him, whose faith was in God, who would be redeemed, he took all the weight of their sin. But not only of all the weight of the sin of the people who lived right then and the people who came before, but all the hundreds of years of people who came after, us included. And know that there are a lot of people. And he took the weight of all of those sins. So when it talks about his suffering, he suffered beyond what we can even understand or hope to understand because sin was just that heavy. So because of his suffering and then his coming back to life, we are now given comfort. We are given strength in the midst of whatever suffering we have because our Savior suffered more and was victorious. Not he was victorious over sin, but God made him alive. God made him victorious. He was the God who came to do this. And it's not that we can pull this off. Jesus, being very God, did the work, and as he suffered, we suffer, and as he has comfort, we have comfort, because we no longer have to bear the weight of our sins, for he took those sins. If we go to Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, we get a, a glimpse into what this, what this looks like for us, because, because there's, there's temporal components to it. There's, a, there's an end times or an after death understanding that we have to have that Jesus offers to pay for our sins if we trust him. But there's also a temporal, a right now in time event that goes on. For, uh, Philippians chapter four, verse seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In the here and now, we are offered peace that surpasses our ability to understand while we are in Christ or because of our faith in Christ, because of his work, we are offered this peace. The more difficult your circumstances, the more peace you are offered. Because you can't come to a circumstance that is so dire, so broken, so hard that his salvation can't supersede it, that his peace can't surmount it. Some of the most difficult times that I have ever found in life, I have also found the most peace, which makes no sense. 
things that, things that make you wonder if you can continue on. You don't have the strength to deal with. And God just puts his hands on you and says, it's okay. There's also an element as we look more futuristically out of Romans 8, 28 that we have to keep in mind. And we know that all, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So, so what is God doing? So we, we've got these events that are hard to deal with. We've got these things which in which we need comfort. And God says, here's what's going on. He doesn't tell us the whys, but he tells us the results. We may never know why he moves pieces the way that he does, but the result of his moving those pieces, regardless of what they are, is our benefit, which is what? Being made like Christ. That's the best thing we can get. For we know that in all things, God works for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. But friends, this does not extend to everyone. One time I was asked how, how I could comfort somebody who had just lost their brother in a car accident. I was youth pastor in Nebraska and I got a text message. My friend's brother just died in a car accident. What are some verses that comfort them? Do you know what the only right answer to that is? Are they a believer? Because if they're not a believer, there's no verses that comfort them. The comfort is in salvation in Jesus, not in feeling good. The comfort is in knowing that you can end up in heaven regardless of what happens here, not that I can make somebody by snapping my fingers or quoting a verse make them feel good or it's fake, and we're not into fake. So when we come to this, that God works for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose, that's who it's working out good for because the result is that we become like Jesus. Now we go back to first or second Corinthians chapter one and we see the shift. Uh, he says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Notice that the focus is on who? It's on Jesus and we're recipients of something because of Jesus. But, but the focus is on Jesus and what he did and who he is. And the shift happens in verse six, not that the focus comes off Jesus, but the purpose, the result of it comes out of that. If we are afflicted, we being the apostles, we being Paul and his cohort, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Where's Paul in this? Just the conduit through which comfort or suffering is coming. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we do. The focus is on the others. There's a hard shift to, to the theological understanding and foundation of comfort to then the resulting act of comfort. And the resulting act of comfort is that Paul sees that everything he's going through, good or bad, as purposed toward giving comfort to the other believers, giving strength and purpose and fortitude to the other believers regardless of their circumstances. No matter how hard, no matter how easy, 
They are comforted because of what Paul goes through. If we flipped to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, we see this even more particularly. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restitution, which implies what? That there's brokenness. That within this body of people, as much as 2 Corinthians is a happy, good book where people are doing well, they're still aiming for restitution, which means there's some level of discord. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restitution. Comfort one another. So in case we missed it out of the first chapter, the first few verses of the entire letter, he ends it at the end with the same thing. We're to comfort one another, chapter 1, verse 6. We're to comfort one another, chapter 13, verse 11. Who do we comfort? Anyone we can, particularly believers. The kind of comfort that we can give to a fellow believer is unlike the comfort that can be given to the rest of the world, as we were just talking about that person whose friend's brother had died. There is comfort that I can give to a believer. There is not that same comfort to everyone else. But we are to look for and actively pursue comforting one another, not bringing comfort to one another, but comforting one another. There's some particular ways that we can do that. But before we look into the particulars, pastors have a, a, a tendency to say, hey, here's a great idea. Let's jump to the particulars of how we can do that before we really have the foundation of what it means. So what does it mean that we find comfort? We have to understand what God does before we can jump to how we can emulate him because we're to show comfort in the same way he does. Psalm chapter 23, verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When do they? In the valley of the shadow of death. And if we read this, when does he say he comes out of that? Did God's rod and staff bring him out of the valley of the shadow of death? No. He talks about eating then in the presence of his enemies. That's a real safe place to be. Eventually, he gets to eternal life with Yahweh. And that's where the party begins, you could say. Until then, he has no idea when or how or if he's getting out of the valley of the shadow of death. What particularly is the valley of the shadow of death? I have no idea. It's whatever it needs to be. Whether it's actually a place where your body is going to die, because all of us will. Now, while death is normal to life, we must understand it is not natural to life. We were created to live endlessly. We were not created to die. Then we sin and we die. So death feels unnatural, even though it's normal, because it is. And so now we're here in the valley of the shadow of death. Whether that's extreme pain, sorrow, the death of a friend, the death of self, sickness, turmoil, war, whatever it is, you're in this place where you're overshadowed by death and pain and hurt, and God comforts you. How? With the peace that passes understanding because of the comfort that he can give because of his mercy, 
because of his grace, because of the life that he offers. Without that, all we have is pretense, hope, nothing substantial. But he comforts us in the valley of the shadow of death because he did the work for us to receive the benefit. That's how it's wonderful. Psalm 34, 8 continues this, or 18 continues this idea. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. In those times, I alluded to it earlier, in those times where Allison and I, uh, my family, or just myself, have been through the darkest moments of our lives, the nearness of God that was felt in that time was unbelievable. So if you want to feel the nearness of God, walk out the door and put yourself in the worst situation you can think of. Don't do that. But when you find yourself there, you will find that God is near you in a way that you didn't know. And you maybe can't even explain, which is why it's a peace that passes understanding, sometimes passes communication. We don't know how to say it, but it's there. And he's near to us. While that's not a comfort in the sense that we're out of trouble. It's a comfort in the sense that while this is hard, God is near me. He didn't forsake me. He didn't leave me. He didn't run off. He's right there with me in the process. And even if this thing kills me, he hasn't left me. James chapter one, verses two to four. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you know what steadfastness just means as a general rule? A long time. If you've ever watched the NFL Combine, they do something there where, I have no idea why it's called the combine, by the way, but it's called the combine, and they go there and they show off how good they are at football so that somebody will choose them for their team. And they all run the 40-yard dash to see what their times are. You know what I've never heard an announcer say? Truth be told, I've never actually watched it, so we're just making this up as we go. <laughs> do you know what I've never heard an announcer say? Boy, that guy persevered all the way to the end of the 40-yard dash takes five seconds. There's no persevering. You don't have to continue on. I mean, if you're really slow, it takes six. If you're Brock, it takes eight, but you know, it's only eight seconds. There's no persevering. But here it says that we're to count it joys when we continue to work and deal with the trial because that brings perfection continuing to humble ourselves before the Lord and be comforted by him, to be near him, to know him, that brings, uh, makes us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, there's a, there's a tendency, an error, if you will, that we have a potential of making, and that is to say, okay, so God sees us in our distress and leaves us there, but comforts us. So if we are to 
comfort people like God does. We should see them in their distress, leave them there, and say nice things to make them feel good. Uh, that's a tendency, and nobody says it quite like that, but it's sometimes what we do. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now, I realize verses 14 to 26 out of James chapter 2 might be the most contentious set of verses that evangelicals find. And if you don't know why, read them, try to understand them, and then Chris would love to talk to you about it. <laughs> now, I would love to. This is one of my favorite books. But Martin Luther called this an epistle of straw, worthy to be burned. That's what he said of this book. He, he didn't like this chapter, didn't like this idea. And I think he was wrong. In fact, I'm convinced he was wrong. But what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He's asking if you've got faith but it doesn't show itself, is it even real? That's really what he's asking. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled. I don't think any of us talk like that, but you know what we do say? Oh, I'll pray for you. Which just politely means, go away. I don't want to deal with it. They say, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that are needed for the body. What good is that? Can we, do we have the resources to supply everybody's needs all the time? No. Sometimes it's not even helpful to supply their needs for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it is. How do we know which? If you come back next week, Jim Ferris has a Sunday school class called the Growth Group class in the gym, and he is answering all of those questions. He has it totally nailed down. And it's a great place to have that conversation. But we're going to give you one of the principles that you need to follow and not abuse. John chapter 14, verse 16. John 14, 26, rather. Jesus says in 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. While I'm physically here, while I'm personally with you, I'm telling you these things now... 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, who he's already said will come after he comes, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The principle here being that he is the one who knows truth and he will teach what needs to be taught. Now, we can't just say, oh, I prayed about it and here's what I want to do. I've had people tell me that the Holy Spirit has told them that they can do things that the Bible says that they cannot do. If the Bible says something is wrong and deep inside you, you know the Holy Spirit is telling you to do it because it's right, then you can know it is not the Holy Spirit telling you that. It is your own broken heart and broken desires. And James chapter one says that those brokenness or that brokenness leads us to temptation, temptation to sin, sin to death. But we're tempted because of our own brokenness deep inside of us. So we've got a situation where somebody else is in need and we're trying to figure out what to do. But that's not the only place 
where we need to understand whether or not something's going to be taken from somebody. Still in the book of 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. And Paul writes this, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. The revelations, not the Paul. Notice. So Paul has had things done in him and through him that are not normal to everybody else. But it's not Paul. It's the revelations that God has used. Such as in the book of Acts, Paul comes to a town and the people all say, hey, we trusted in Jesus and the Holy Spirit hasn't come on us. What do we do? So Paul prays for them and whoosh, the Holy Spirit comes down. Uh, Paul was preaching one time and somebody fell asleep. Here's a lesson. Do not sleep during a sermon. Yeah, you, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's like, I'm not. A guy was sleeping in the window. First of all, don't sleep in windows. He fell out. He died. Paul went down and prayed for him. Back to life. To make it so that nobody thinks, and Paul particularly doesn't think that this is about him, he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. It doesn't mean he asked. It means he begged over and over and over in this time that, the, that it should leave me. But he, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. And we see an idea come in at the end of this. He has the issue, the thorn, and God says, I've given you enough grace to deal with it. Now be content, Paul says. I'll be content then with my weaknesses, hardships, calamities, all of these things. And contentment becomes connected to the comfort, the grace that God gave, what he needed to supply him or sustain him through this. Contentment becomes connected with it. Philippians chapter 4 we read verse 7. We're now going to start in verse 10 or verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now we have that same idea again. Contentment, Paul says he needs to have because God's grace is sufficient for him. So now here's what contentment is. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How are we supposed to go about the business of comforting one another? First of all, we need to understand that God has given us and us enough grace to deal with all the things that he has allowed us to go through. Whatever thorns we have, whatever issues we have, whatever difficulties we have, he has given us the grace needed to deal with it, not because we are strong, but because he is strong and particularly because we are weak. And now in the contentment in our weakness, we can see what that means. Contentment means I can be whatever circumstance I'm in. Why? Because the power of Christ is the one that gives me strength to deal with it. Not the power of Brock, not the power of the elders, not the power of Bethel. The power of Christ 
allows us to do that. James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Again, how do we comfort? If anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What does God want from us? He wants us to see people in their difficulties and their affliction and help where we can. We don't have the resources to help everyone everywhere, but we do have the resources to help some people some of the time to some of the extent. How do we know how much? It's back to the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's a case-by-case scenario. It's by bringing other people alongside you to say, what should we do? How do we deal with this? Okay, here's what we see. Because sometimes we're not helping by giving. Sometimes we're not helping by not giving. And here we are to take care of the orphans and widows. This is particularly those people who cannot fend or care for themselves. And to keep yourself unstained from the world. Jump back to Galatians chapter 6. Verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How do we show comfort? We help carry someone else's burdens, whatever they are. Now, if you rack up $20,000 in credit card debt and you want somebody to come alleviate your burden for you, we're not gonna say, oh yeah, we're just gonna pay that off most likely. That's not what it means What's the context? I'm glad you asked. The context is in verse one. Galatians chapter six, verse one. Brothers, brothers and sisters, fellow believers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, which is called a sin, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself so you don't be tempted. Help bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The particular of how to bear one another's burdens is to see someone caught in sin and help that person get out of it. But sometimes people need help and they're not caught in a sin. What do we do there? You still help bear their burdens. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who are able to teach others also. So there's people who need a weight carried because they're in sin and they can't deal with it. Help bear that burden. There are people who need to grow and they need somebody to teach them that not information, lifestyle, character. They need somebody to teach them because they can't do it on their own. Teach them. That is how you bear that burden. You find those who can't fend for themselves and you take care of them to the best of your ability. That's how you comfort them. And that's what we're called to do. Why? Because God in his mercy sent his son to die for us so that we could be comforted through Christ and through his sufferings because he died on our behalf to be a propitiation for our sins, to appease God's wrath so that we could live with him and be comforted even in the midst of whatever difficulty we have now. Who is God? God is a comforter. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you again for the opportunity that we have to know you, to follow you, to be like you, to honor you. And Lord, we ask that you would take us and continue to teach us your word and your son. Guide us with your Holy Spirit so that you would be the most glorified and honored in our hearts and in our lives. Thank you for Christ coming to earth. Thank you for Christ living a perfect life, for Christ dying on the cross, for Christ coming back to life so that we could worship Christ. And it's in his holy and amazing name we pray. Amen.